Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Max Verstappen claims a record-breaking 16th win of the season ahead of Lewis Hamilton in a red-flagged race in Mexico City. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 19, the Mexico City Grand Prix. Ferrari's genuinely surprising front-row lockout lasted barely one corner, with Max Verstappen scything through from third on the grid to take a lead he'd never meaningfully relinquish en route to his 16th victory of the year. One more than the previous record, which he set himself last season. There was some jeopardy in the race, other than Sergio Perez causing a first corner crash. Verstappen had committed to a risky two-stop strategy to ensure his tyres would make it to the end, potentially putting him on course to overtake Charles Leclerc and Lewis Hamilton in the final stint. But a mid-race red flag neutralised all that and gifted him a straightforward victory. Hamilton's sights instead turned on Leclerc, from whom he nabbed second place thanks to an aggressive tyre choice at the resumption. So to debrief another history-making race, I'm joined by Thomas Marr from Planet F1. Tom, how are you going? I am absolutely fantastic, Michael. How are you? I'm not quite at that level, but I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for asking. It's been a, a very long season. We're down to the last three races, but I'm pleased to say that I think for the second race in a row, despite these being dead rubbers, we got an interesting Grand Prix. But inevitably, let's start with Max Verstappen and check off some data and information here because he's broken the record for most wins in a season. In fact, he's running out of records, isn't he? Because he's breaking his own records now, which is either very impressive or very grim, depending on how you want to look at it. That's 16 in a season, breaking last year's record of 15. But it also, Tom, takes him high up the percentage wins in a year stakes. And I guess that's kind of important for those who say, well, there are so many races these days in a season. doesn't really count. He's now behind only Alberto Ascari, who won from six from eight uh, back in the early days of Formula One. And if he wins one more race, he takes it outright. Does that sort of in your mind, quash any doubts about the significance of the things he's doing statistically this season? I, I don't think there ever really was any question marks over the, the, you know, the authenticity of what Max Verstappen is achieving in Formula One. Um, you know, the, the the divisive nature, I think, of how he won the title in 2021 has, you know, I think to this day skewed the, the story and the, the narrative that surrounds Max Verstappen. And, you know, um, I, I, I think that's always going to play a part in how Verstappen is viewed as a contemporary Formula One driver. I think it's going to take a few years. I think history is going to take a while to reward Max Verstappen um, for what he's managing to achieve in Formula One. Because it's it's... The last time that I can really remember uh, a driver being able to do what Max is doing at the moment, you have to look back to, I think, you know, Lewis in kind of the days of the domination of Mercedes. And prior to that, then Michael Schumacher as well with Ferrari. It's You, you always know with Max 
that he's going to do exactly what he needs to do in order to pull off the win. There, there, you know that moment where it's just like there is no doubt in your mind that it's going to happen. There are very few drivers who are able to reach that level, no matter how good their equipment is, where you reach a point where you just know that it's coming. And Max does it weekend in, weekend out. And as you say, he's done it now, what, 16 times this year? It, it's just an unbelievable display of domination in a car that, you know, it's, a, it's an exceptional car. Let's, let's not get it wrong. But if Red Bull had two Sergio Perez's, where would they be in the championship? And Perez, up until this year, was viewed as a very, very solid F1 driver. So, you know, that Max is making that difference. And, you know, we should we should feel privileged to be able to watch history unfolding right in front of us, even if it is, you know, somewhat predictable. I think it's really spot on the way you put it, that history will take time to judge this period, but it always does, doesn't it? You know, people reflect fondly, believe it or not, on the Michael Schumacher era. And I grew up as a Michael Schumacher fan, but... A lot of races were very straightforward, and you can say the same about so many other dominant eras. We've just sat through the Lewis Hamilton year, and I think it's actually not taken that long at all for people to reflect on it, maybe not nostalgically, let's say, maybe not necessarily longing for it to return, but certainly considering the things we witnessed in the last almost decade of, of racing in Formula One to be something really great. And so it will take time for that to happen for Max Verstappen. But presumably we're going to have very many more wins to think about this because he'll also be moving up the all-time victory record too before the end of the season. He's now equal with Alain Prost, probably will surpass Sebastian Vettel by the end of the year and be third outright, which is remarkable to think. It's crazy because he's only 26, just yeah. gone 26. Yeah. How far can Max go? It's it's probably better not to ponder that question, I think. The only thing that's preventing him from from really theoretically becoming one of or accumulating astronomical numbers is the fact that he says he doesn't want to race for that long. You know, we might only have him for another well, how long is his contract running for now? Is it another 4 years? That might be it. Yeah, it's up till what 2028, end of 2028. And but you do get the feeling that Max has the kind of mental uh, rootlessness that if he suddenly decides I'm done, he'll he'll just cut and run away from the sport because Max is more, I think, of a a racing fan as opposed to a Formula One fan. But then again, you know, I remember 20 years ago, Kimi Raikkonen used to always talk about how he was here for a good time, not a long time. And in the end, what, 20 years later, he still had to be pried out of his Formula One car. So, you know, what what he says at this point in time, faced with the reality of, you know, maybe, oh, I'm leaving Formula One behind. Maybe that'll be very different when it becomes a more tangible thing in front of him rather than just a hypothetical off in the future. It's natural. You get older, you become more routine. Suddenly you don't know what to do with your life when you leave your job, when you retire. It's completely natural, but we will see. It will be an interesting inflection point when we get towards the end of his career and reflecting then upon... Who knows how many records he'll own by then, how many wins, how many titles. Uh, A story for another time, for many years in the future. For now, we've got present-day domination to deal with, of course. And this was another victory for Max. Ended up being pretty straightforward, thanks to the timing of the red flag. That was the defining point of this race, was that pretty much spot-on half-distance meant everyone got a nice relatively straightforward run through to the flag. We'll break down some of the other races as we go. But let's talk about Max just specifically here, because Red Bull, I thought interesting, I after the race, said it was gunning for a two-stop. Certainly Max made a really early stop uh, for his first change of tyres. This was theoretically, 
going to be like eight seconds slower on paper, the two-stop compared to the one-stop. Not very many other teams considered it. Christian Horner likes to say things, or quoting Dietrich Mateschitz anyway, like uh, no risk, no fun as justification for this. How much of that do you think with all the titles done and dusted is true relative to Red Bull just tacitly admitting and playing to the fact that the car it's got and with Max Verstappen in the cockpit can seemingly achieve just about anything? I think it shows the level of faith they have in Max that they can, and this again is something that we saw with with Schumacher and Hamilton in the past. It's you can put a, a slightly different in stra- a strategy in front of their driver, with the confidence that the driver will be able to pull off the theoretical best, you know, that the computer simulations say is possible. If an overtake is needed on track, you know, they're they're confident that the driver will be able to pull off that that overtaking. It's the perfect harmony, I suppose, of the team. The, the strategy decisions that are being made and the driver's execution of that strategy. You know, it's it's very rare that you're, you're able to put all those ingredients together to make something work. But, you know, it's Max we're talking about at this stage. It's He's just able to pull it off. And you give him a slower strategy or a strategy that's suboptimal, you know, you'd still... A 2023 vintage Red Bull and Max Verstappen, you kind of have to say... They're still pretty likely to pull it off, uh, especially against, you know, teams that I think are still not quite firing on on all cylinders like Ferrari. We see them, you know, still kind of struggling a little bit with with tire degradation. Mercedes still have that little bit of inconsistency and a bit of an imbalance as well in the in their driver lineup at, at the moment. And McLaren, well, McLaren just didn't have, you know, the perfect weekend in, in Mexico either. So, you know, it's... Did it really matter that Max was on a, a slightly different strategy? In the end, it, it didn't at all. The the braces that could have been is such an interesting aspect of this race. I find us thinking about this frequently when we get particularly red flag interruptions. Sometimes safety cars deliver this as well. The biggest what if, of course, is what if Sergio Perez hadn't crashed out of this first lap at the very first corner, in fact. Got a superb start. Did Sergio Perez turned in way too early into turn one. Tried to claim an apex already under claim from two other drivers crashed himself out of his home Grand Prix. Did get that great run, though, and we have seen, well, it's Max Verstappen, wasn't it, two years ago, take exactly that line sweeping around two Mercedes drivers as it was in the time in 2021 to take the lead. So maybe not completely out of the picture, but what that robbed us of, of course, was two Red Bull racing cars that actually seemed relatively closely matched based on practice and qualifying pace, potentially going for victory. It's been, Tom, a really long time since Sergio Perez has actually contended for victory against Max Verstappen. Months. Pretty much you have to go back to the very start of the season to remember a time it happened. Could you have imagined how that might have played out in a two-stop strategy scenario? The context of this being Mexico, but Max being the reigning champion and Sergio Perez having a cloud over his seat. How much have we missed out on that potential race? I'd love to know whether Red Bull actually set it up in order to actually allow for, you know, a a tete-a-tete between their their two drivers. That would have been really fun to see. But as you say, it's it's pondering the what-ifs, really. You have to feel really sorry for, for Sergio Perez because I think he just, you know, starting from fifth on the grid, he's got the whole... He will have been able to hear that crowd cheering 
as he got alongside Charles and and Max into turn one. And I think just the adrenaline of the moment, he, he got swept up in it, tried to make a, an audacious move work. And, you know, the, the, the ingredients were there, weren't they? Because we saw Max do the same two years ago to the, to the two Mercedes drivers. So it's in theory possible that he could have done it, but just just didn't quite nail it then right when the chips were down, which again is something we've seen Max was able to do, you know, and he was able to do it in the the heat of the moment, you know, when a championship was on the line. Sergio couldn't pull it off in quite the same, uh, with the same level of panache. And, you know, we saw how it played out with the, the floor damage and, you know, having to retire from the race. But what would have been very interesting to see is what would have happened because we saw the Ferrari didn't quite have the pace over the entire race to be able to contend with with Max. Could Sergio have brought the battle to Max? I think he would have been the most competitive we've seen all year since probably Miami. And even that wasn't a particularly amazing race from Sergio either. What was the race before Miami? I think Azerbaijan, that's, that's kind of the last time we've seen Sergio bring a proper challenge to to Max on track, I think. I, I can't think of any other race over the kind of mid portion of the season where he, he's genuinely challenged Max or Max has had to actually genuinely fight against him. Spa is probably the closest and even that wasn't really a battle. Um, so I think Sergio, based on, you know, the adrenaline of what we saw, what we saw in practice as well, where Sergio did look a bit more comfortable than, than what we've seen for most of this year, I, I think, yeah, it would have been a far more intriguing battle, I think, to see Sergio trying to, you know, use the crowd cheering and momentum to try pulling in that gap a little bit more and fight Max. But as you say, what what, what might have been? Yeah, inevitably that's been, well, the story of so much of his season, of the season in general, perhaps. We might have had a championship fight. What might have been? It fell to Mercedes and Ferrari to try and put up a fight. Neither ultimately had the pace for Max Verstappen, although we didn't get to see that two-stop strategy play out. They were all neutralised in the middle of the race. But I want to talk about Ferrari in particular first, because the backdrop of, of course, this race in Mexico is... I guess the circuit in in one sense, but it's really the environment in another. The thinner atmosphere, it's around 20%, a little bit more than 20% thinner than it is at sea level, just generates weird conditions for cars. Cooling is at such a limit. The tyres are sliding much more than you would expect for the amount of downforce that's supposed to be on the cars, considering the wings. It's a real difficult balancing act. And funnily enough, we saw Ferrari nail it almost by accident in Q3 with a front row lockout. No one was more surprised than Charles Leclerc, I think, for Charles Leclerc to be on pole position. Holding that was always going to be really difficult in the race. In the end, it couldn't be done. But I thought it was really interesting, Tom, the way that Ferrari approached this strategically. You know, in the United States, it was pretty chaotic. Charles Leclerc was nowhere in the race. Carlos Sainz inherited a podium place after the disqualifications. Here, neither driver responded to Max pitting early, then Lewis Hamilton pitting a little bit later. Both really adamant that they were on plan A. The first time I think I've heard any engineer at Ferrari talk about plan A, the number one plan, which was going to be a one-stop, maximise the tyre life, the pace that Ferrari actually had. And it kind of worked, didn't it? Like, they got a podium with Charles Leclerc. Had there not been a red flag, it might have been a bit more emphatic. It might have been a second place. Is this a, a nice, uh, I guess, revision after the United States? Have they turned themselves around a little bit to erase the memory of what was, a, to be fair to Ferrari, what seemed like almost a little bit of a one-off bad strategy call in a year that's been a little bit smoother than the last few? 
I think Ferrari have improved in terms of their decision-making overall this year. They're, they're no longer doing stuff that's completely ludicrous. Um, <laughs> they're not dropping the ball in, in the actual pit stops anymore. They're, you, you, you know, you're no longer kind of going, oh, Ferrari, quite as much <laughs> as, as we have in the past. Um, the, but the one thing that you would say is starting from first and second on the grid in qualifying is... You know, third place with Charles and and Carlos in um, in fourth. Is that really what they would have been hoping for from a front row lockout? It's probably not. It, it kind of got away from them a little bit, and it feels like there was a problem early on in the year with tire degradation, and it felt like they'd kind of gotten on top of that, particularly uh, around the likes of Italy and Japan, um, where we saw you know strong performances from Ferrari. But it seems like that problem is slightly returning as the the season kind of winds down. They don't seem to be fully on top of of their tire degradation as much as I would have thought they were. You know, again, we saw Charles racing with, you know, the damage on the the front wing uh, in the early stages of the race. That's actually something that I found a little bit strange because it didn't really seem to affect his pace at all, Michael, did it? Mm. Yeah, well, that is sort of interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you see seemingly significant damage and the pace is not too badly affected but I guess that kind of speaks to the fact that so much of this track is just about pace management and if you're not really required to be going flat out you can kind of mask it a little bit and then like so many people did on other strategy calls I guess Ferrari got lucky with a red flag that the damage could be repaired for the second half of the race although inevitably Lewis Hamilton got past him anyway. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That battle between Ferrari and Mercedes is interesting because there is the context of the Constructors' Championship. It's uh, only 22 points, I think it is, separating Mercedes in second from Ferrari in third. So there is a little bit of an edge to Lewis Hamilton trying to battle past those guys as well as his own personal mission, I guess, to try and overhaul Sergio Perez for second in the Drivers' Championship too. Only 20 points there. But Lewis Hamilton's race, I thought, was interesting. He was going for... He was keeping his options open, essentially, making a stop uh, early enough that he could do two could probably still survive for one of course again we don't know how that was going to play out because of the red flag but you mentioned a little bit earlier Tom that it feels like there's a little bit of a mismatch at the Mercedes driver lineup maybe that's overstating it a little bit because we know George Russell has a pretty high ceiling we've seen some pretty great performances from him including as recently as just after the mid-season break really it wasn't that long ago we were talking about him getting back on terms but I don't know if you've got the same impression you know Mercedes has upgraded the car recently in fact it was only last week at the United States Grand Prix a strong performance from Lewis Hamilton before he's disqualified again this week leading the way for Mercedes really strong race from Lewis really well executed George Russell a little bit adrift is it too much to say that you know Lewis Hamilton is executing better when he feels like the car is kind of moving in the right direction? Because for the last 18 months, you've often got the impression, not necessarily that his head's down, but that he maybe lacks that 1% when he feels like the car is not doing what he wants it to do, when development's not moving his direction. Are we essentially seeing a little bit of the old Lewis Hamilton back now that he's got a bit of optimism about him? 
I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think Lewis is getting some of his love of F1 back um, because I think, you know, regardless of what he says, and, you know, he has been pretty vocal about this in the past, but maybe he, he, he hasn't been quite as open about, you know, the psychological impact of what happened in Abu Dhabi 2021 because, you know, it's a, it was a pretty devastating blow to go through and then to immediately start... Uh, you know, a kind of a new era of Formula One with some optimism and, you know, kind of, I'm going to get my revenge and all this. And then to see the rival who beat you, you know, canter off into the distance while your own car is, you know, suboptimal, I suppose, is the, <laughs> the Ron Dennis way of, of saying how good last year's Mercedes was. But Merck have slowly but surely been addressing their issues. They're a much stronger outfit now and the car is much stronger now than it was at the start of 2022. And I think from what we've seen over the past 18 months, Russell has been able to bring the fight to Hamilton, you know, on a more regular basis than I would have initially thought two years ago. But as that machinery has gotten better it looks like it's kind of gotten away from George a little bit. And, you know, Mercedes have kind of pointed the finger a bit at Red Bull about how, you know, the development of the RB19 has focused around Max and Red Bull have obviously denied all that. But, you know, you can point the finger back at Mercedes and say all the upgrades that they've brought to the W14 this year have gone in Hamilton's direction while kind of getting away from Russell. Now, maybe Russell, you know, George has been quite open about how he's had a scrappy season and I think he's let the head drop a little bit. But I don't think that would fundamentally affect your pace as such, quite as much as what we've seen over the last kind of two, three months. George has fundamentally seemed to lose a little bit of pace overall compared to Lewis. And... Why is that? It's it's very hard to tell from the outside looking in what's going on there. Maybe George is, you know, struggling a little bit with realising just what a an animal Hamilton is as a teammate. To have someone who's so relentless, who's so always on it. And then, you know, I think that's what George is, is slowly being exposed to. I think George has also been slightly knocked for six by the fact that he, ever since the contract renewal, because I think George came to Mercedes with the impression that he was the future of Mercedes. And by Hamilton signing up for, you know, another year first and then another two year extension, I think George sees that future that he had kind of maybe mapped out for himself in his own head. I think it's kind of gotten away from him a little bit and he sees now that, you know, Lewis is still there. And by the end of this current contract, George will have been at Mercedes for four years. So the the question mark is, is he the future of Mercedes now or is it going to be slightly too late for him to assume that mantle by the time Lewis actually does, you know, eventually shuffle off into retirement? I think George has some big question marks over his head at the moment. I think he has the talent. Uh, I think he has the temperament, but he he needs to pull it all together now and respond to what Lewis Hamilton is doing on track because we know, you know, Hamilton is, is a teammate destroyer. And if George lets the head drop too much, I think George is in danger of having that same crushing punishment dealt out to him if he doesn't rescue the situation, especially early on next year. It's a really good way to put it, actually, isn't it? Because it was a succession plan, really, wasn't it? George Russell arriving at Mercedes, and that's still very much the case. He's got many years on Lewis Hamilton, or vice versa, depending on how you want to say it. But the longer Lewis Hamilton stays there, the more he becomes Lewis's teammate. And like you say, the longer you're a teammate of a great, like Max or like Lewis, 
the more that's almost all you ever become. And then who knows when that opportunity comes. So I think there is a, an interesting broader question there to be answered. And well, I get it, we'll, we'll only find out the answer over many years, I suppose. What I really liked about Mercedes in this race, though, was that it felt like it was more aggressive. You know, Lewis Hamilton and George Russell, after the red flag, both took used medium tyres, gambling that the mediums, they could make them last to the end, and they'd get, of course, the pace benefit, despite all the reasons why you'd think that wouldn't be the case. The sliding of the tyres, the difficulty keeping them cool in the right window, especially when you're racing other cars and you're in that dirty air and all that kind of stuff. Really pulled it off well. Another reason this was such a greatly executed race from Lewis Hamilton and slightly less so for George Russell. It's got to be said he made some mistakes with cooling, he said, in terms of keeping the tyres in that optimum window and almost lost a place to Daniel Ricciardo late. Really liked that same thing, of course, about McLaren's race, particularly with Lando Norris, who had a superb race, particularly in the second half of the Grand Prix, when everything kind of came to him through that red flag. I'll talk about what happened in qualifying in just a second, but he started on the soft tyre, the only time the soft tyre was ever even featured in this race, which was, well, pretty racy, pretty aggressive. Then, despite his own reservations about the medium tyre after the red flag, the team put it on him, backed him to perform on it, and, man, did he perform really well on that tyre, never showed any signs of going off despite the number of passes he had to make, and he dropped a 14th at that red flag restart uh, and finished fifth, so what's that nine overtakes made? Lando Norris is really highly rated, obviously. How Where did this race figure in how you've been rating Lando Norris? Because for me, this was a real... I feel like this might be one of those races we look back on, actually, and think about, man, he really showed us what he can do. Before I talk about Lando, I have one more point about Mercedes I just want to bring up, and that is... The fact that I think over their run of domination in Formula One, we saw them become, you know, very reactive because they were they were in a position where they didn't have to be aggressive in how they went racing. So in terms of their pit stops and pit strategy, they were always maybe a little bit behind because they were always able to respond to what other teams were throwing at them. Now they're not in a position to be able to do that. And this is something Red Bull have done so well in the past is that they would take the aggressive strategy option and, you know, the Red Bull are still very good at this, but they are able to disrupt other teams' plans. And that is something I think that Mercedes has struggled to get their head around over the last 18 months, that they're no longer in a position to respond to people and that they have to be the dis- disruptors. And I think a prime example of seeing this mentality shift was probably Singapore, where they stuck on the the mediums for that final push when they had that little opportunity with with the VSC. So I think that is something that I think Mercedes are slowly but surely figuring out. Go down the Red Bull route. Let's disrupt uh, what the others are doing on track and see what we can do. And, you know, it seems to be working out for them at the moment. But yeah, going back to what you were saying about Lando Norris, um, Norris has become, I think, this season, one of the, you know, Formula One's prime talents, I think. Uh, you know, he's al- he's always shown huge amounts of potential. He's always shown this, um, the, the, the right mentality. But he's now teamed up with someone who, you know, has a, an exceptional pedigree coming from junior formula. And Oscar Piastri has... You know, Piastri has been very impressive this year as well as a rookie. He's been a sensational rookie. But Norris has had the measure of him 
you know, 90% of the time, most most of the time this year, Norris has been there or thereabouts. And, you know, he does have that little bit more experience. He has, what, three or four years um, experience now racing in Formula One. But in terms of the raw talent that's there, Norris is showing he has the right stuff and he's responding to what Piastri is doing on track. Um, you know, and th- that overtaking fest that we saw from Lando in, in Mexico, he's just able to set everybody up. You know, he was able to wrong foot George Russell through turns, um, you know, three and four and set up that great pass. He was overtaking Daniel Ricciardo on track. He overtook Alex Albon pretty easily on track. Um, you know, th- this was a, a, a consummate display from Lando. And then, of course, he got the satisfaction of being able to overtake uh, Oscar with, with a little bit of cooperation, of course, obviously, as well. But considering their starting positions for the race and what happened to Lando in the middle of the race with that bad restart, I think he'll take a lot of pleasure in in how that race played out. And, you know, Andrea Stella said after the race that he, he viewed it as similar to what Fernando Alonso did at Valencia in 2012, where, where the Ferrari driver won that race from 11th on the grid. So, you know, I think there are valid comparisons there because obviously Andrea was the race engineer for, for, for Fernando that day. So if Andrea is in a position to be able to say, look, Lando's drive was just as impressive as what Fernando did when he won that race what, 11 years ago. I think that says a lot about the quality of Lando's drive. It's just unfortunate that qualifying played out the way it did. Um, but yeah, it, Lando is one of those drivers. He really needs to get that first win, doesn't he? He's 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 nearly owed it at this stage. And, you know, the fact that Piastri has a race win this year, even if it is a, a sprint win, so it doesn't really count. But <laughs> I, the stats people must hate that. But... Um, but the fact that Piastri has a race win of any description and Lando doesn't, it feels a little bit unfair right now. I know it's all luck and circumstances and all that, but there's no doubt Norris is, he, he has the talent, he has everything he needs to be able to pull this off. He just needs all the pieces to pull together for him on one day to be able to actually pull this one off. So I'm curious what you made then before we sort of start wrapping this one up because McLaren showed such good pace throughout practice at this circuit. It's a circuit they didn't expect to perform well at but then again I feel like Lando Norris is not about virtually every circuit they rock up at and lo and behold he's got podium contending pace but was clearly marked out as a front runner after Friday practice and, and Saturday morning practice as well. Then made the decision the team did to send both drivers out on medium tyres. Lando Norris didn't even set that banker lap because of a, a technical problem with the car. Had two laps on the softs at the end. Botched his first one, which is liable to happen. That's why he had two goes. But then, of course, lost his final attempt to a yellow flag from Fernando Alonso. It was such a big opportunity for McLaren because, of course, they're still only just ahead of Aston Martin in the constructor standings. He'd set themselves like a stretch target to try and catch Ferrari for third in the standings as well. Did that not seem to you like unnecessary risk to put both drivers out on that kind of strategy in Q1 when there's nothing really to gain and everything to lose? And then, lo and behold, we find out that Lando Norris actually had at a minimum podium contending pace actually in the race, maybe even, who knows in our what-if world, potentially Verstappen challenging pace. Does it not seem all a little bit squandered in that sense? Yeah, I think it was something of a squandered opportunity for McLaren. If it had happened to Piastri, it probably wouldn't have been quite as devastating for their overall weekend um, point score. Because as, as you said, Ferrari... They're they're a pipe dream. I think they're they're slightly too far ahead in the championship. I think to realistically be 
be caught in in the uh, for third place in the championship. But you know the possibility was there, and I think McLaren have tried to get a little bit more aggressive. But yeah, it's just they they started from too far back this season, and I think they've learned a lot of lessons as the season's gone on. But one of the fundamental lessons is to obviously not try to take too many risks in qualifying and at least try to make sure because the race pace is there. Mexico is a track you can overtake at, as we saw with Lando. They didn't really need to take the the risks that they did. But, you know, sometimes that's the, you know, it just, that's the way it plays out and things backfire in your face. Um, we, we've we've je- definitely mocked Ferrari for doing stupid things in, in qualifying in the past. This time it was McLaren's turn to make a little bit of a mistake. And at the end of the day, it was Lando as well who made an error on track as well. So, you know, I, I think Ferrari are too far out of distance. It's now about consolidating that fourth place, um, which will, I still think is a little bit, not representative of where of where McLaren really have been this season. Um, you know, obviously as an average it is, but they are ending the season as second best team on the grid, I would say. I think if they'd had a smooth Mexico weekend, I think Norris would have been in second place and he would have been reasonably close to um to Max because he did he didn't actually lose that much time to Max in the second half of the season. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but I was going through the um, the, the timing data after the race and the gap, as far as I can remember, didn't increase that much. Lando obviously lost a lot of the time early in the stint due to that bad start, the, the second restart. But I don't think he lost that much time to Max. So I think if he'd had a smoother weekend, a smoother race and everything had gone to plan, I think second place was definitely on the table. Uh, for Lando and we obviously saw Oscar's race play out in a much more kind of straightforward fashion aside from that you know the little tussle with with Yuki Tsunoda Um, but yeah I think uh, as you said a little bit of a squandered opportunity for McLaren but I have no reason to doubt that they'll be back pretty much on form in Brazil this weekend. Yeah, I did a rough crunching of the numbers. It was about 16 seconds that Verstappen lost, uh, Verstappen gained rather on Lando Norris. So if you if you roughly put that into the order, it puts him pretty much where Lewis Hamilton finished. And then, of course, if you take out the time lost battling for overtakes, puts him comfortably into second place, like you say. And then, of course, we don't know how much Verstappen's managing his pace, all that kind of stuff. So you end up with that ultimate unknown, but... Clearly, the pace for second place was there to be had. And then we don't know, had we got a full race, how strategy might have played out to give us a bit more of a more exciting battle, potentially, considering that Verstappen was locked into that two-stop strategy as well. May well have been Lando Norris defending first place from a rampaging Verstappen. Would have been something to see. As a final note, though, Tom, there were a couple of other drivers who benefited from that red flag. Uh, Among them was Alex Albon, who hadn't stopped when it came out, got a free pit stop. Likewise, Esteban Ocon, or they stopped, if not during the red flag, then the safety car immediately proceeding. And in Yuki Tsunoda's case, really similar situation to Norris was on a two-stop and then essentially got onto terms with everybody else by virtue of that red flag allowing them to make free tyre changes. Gave us some interesting battles, Lando Norris obviously being the highlight of them. But it's, it's an attitude now for Formula 1, isn't it, that when the delay for whether it be a crash repair or a barrier repair or any kind of situation that would require a safety car ordinarily, if the delay looks too long, we get red flags. And that's fair enough because it means we get more laps of racing action. But we don't 
we haven't historically had as many red flags as we've had over the last couple of years. It is a little bit of a paradigm shift for the sport. In your opinion, if we're going to get more red flags over subsequent years, several in a season, do the red flag rules need to be rethought from that strategic point of view about free tie changes or bodywork repairs and things like that? Or is it all right as it is? I think you've you've hit the nail on the head, really. I think that the rules do need to, to be changed regarding this, um, particularly the tyre rules. I would say whatever about bodywork repairs, you know, that's a safety aspect. So I think that is definitely something that you should be allowed to repair. But in terms of the tyres, it's, it's a really difficult one because obviously you can't just resend them back out on the tyres that they were on because obviously the strategy that the driver was on can no longer play out. So it would be a fundamentally unfair to send a driver out that was maybe going to stop in one or two laps time without having the advantage that they would have had on track. So it's a very difficult one. The one thing that I always wonder about is we know roughly what the gaps were Um you know, prior to the red flag, why is it not possible to just essentially reset the race to where we were anyway? Just send them out behind the safety car, give the the cars deltas to to you know reform those gaps, and then pull the safety car back in. It shouldn't take that long to be able to achieve that. Um, so I I don't know why that's not something that that couldn't be looked at in a little bit more detail. If a, if a driver has a ten second lead over the car behind. You know, it should be reasonably straightforward to set up deltas, same as under the virtual safety car, for each car in order to re-establish those gaps and reset the race. And it removes the entire um, randomness of the red flag. It it completely takes that variable out of the equation um, in a way that, you know, the safety car and the virtual safety car doesn't. So... I think, yeah, I think I think the rules do need to be changed there somewhat, but I don't think that's going to be something that happens overnight. I think it's going to be something that's going to, as you say, it's been a paradigm shift of increased red flags uh, over the last couple of years. Now there needs to be a paradigm shift to uh, improve the fairness of that. It will be interesting. It'll be something I think the sport has to think about if we're going to use red flags more often is tweaking the rules. What that car, what they come up with, of course, is anyone's guess. It's not yet on the top of the agenda, but perhaps it will get closer with a couple of more interruptions. Mexico City Grand Prix, record-breaking for Max Verstappen. Just three more races to go now, and we'll find out how far he can move up the honour board, the various honour boards that he's already on. Tom, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the race with me. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. Looking forward to the next one. There's never really been much doubt about how good a driver Verstappen is, and for so long it's only really been a matter of time until he has the statistics to prove it. But with yet another record set for wins in one season, and with the previously unimaginable record for most wins as a percentage now easily within his grasp, the Dutchman is at this point redefining domination in Formula 1. Thanks very much to Thomas Ma for joining me to debrief the Mexico City Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. I'll be back next week for the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Running 
Things should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.